This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Christians to which the book of Hebrews was written were tempted to leave that which is invisible for that which is visible. They were tempted to go backwards in the history of redemption to those things that are described as shadows and types and inferior. They were struggling with the relation between the old and new covenants. In what ways are they the same and in what ways are they different? How is the new covenant superior to the old? Here to help us sort these things out is the Reverend Dr. Howell Jones, Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's a minister in the Presbyterian Church of Wales, has served pastorates in Wales and England, was a member of the Executive Committee of the British Evangelical Council of Churches, and was co-chair of the Westminster Fellowship, succeeding D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's also been principal of the London Theological Seminary, where he taught also. He has taught and preached widely in North America, is an author of a commentary on the book of Hebrews, Let's Study Hebrews which is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Howell, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. Here we are talking about Hebrews chapter 8, and we'll dive right in. It says in verse 1, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister, it says in the ESV, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. We'll stop there to try to get oriented to what's going on. Where are we here in Hebrews? Hebrews in chapter 8, and why is the pastor, the author, stressing Jesus' high priesthood so strongly? Well, he's been referring to Jesus' priestly appointment and activity in various ways in the preceding chapters, but here he highlights it because arguably the high priest and his ministry was the acme of Jewish religion and practice and expectation. So in what he says here, and he's particularly concerned that his readers should be well aware of this, there's something so much more to be said about Jesus as high priest than they might realize. Why is it significant that he's at the right hand? What does that denote? It's a Hebraism, and the right hand is the place of authority and power. And here, the reference to the one at whose right hand he is indicates something about his right to be there. Chapter 5 indicates that priests were not self-appointed, nor were they democratically elected. They were chosen by God. And so behind Jesus at the right hand of God certainly is the element of divine choice, but also the achievement as a result of his work that elevates him to that position and ministry. These Christians were being tempted to go back to that which they could see, that which was familiar, that which was, in that sense, comforting. And yet the writer to the Hebrews says not only is Jesus the high priest, and not only is he at the right hand, which is a position of power and authority, and as you say, by divine appointment, by his Father's appointment, he goes on to press the point further to say that Jesus is in the true tabernacle. 
and that the the things to which these Christians are being tempted are not the real thing. Now, that seems counterintuitive. Explain how that can be. Well, true, perhaps for many people, is the antonym of false. Here, it isn't that. True here means real, as it often means in the gospel according to St. John. So the contrast that is being pointed to is real in comparison with what is symbolic. It's one of the same reality that's being pointed to in both, but the symbol and the substance, of course, are vastly different. So the whole Old Testament tabernacle was physically real. It actually existed, but it wasn't the final thing. It wasn't the ultimate thing. It was itself, in a sense, a kind of sacrament. It pointed to something else, and that something else is what exactly? Well, it points to a heavenly reality, which was referred to by the Lord's word to Moses, that everything was to be constructed and furnished, fashioned, according to the pattern shown on the mount. The tabernacle was God's presence with his people. It was the place where they gathered to worship him, and it therefore points forward to the ultimate reality of heaven where he actually is and where his people will be face to face with him. Why is it that we have such a difficult time accepting the reality or the ultimate reality of heaven as opposed to the things that we can see, taste, and touch in this life? Well, part of the explanation, of course, is a fascination with the visual and the way in which our senses are regarded by us as the ultimate indices of reality. But in addition to that, the lack of awareness and appreciation of things that cannot be depicted except verbally by God in his self-revelation and applied to us in terms of the Spirit's enlightenment. Those are the two factors. Our attempt to construct something visible is ultimately an assault on the verbal and the denial of the disclosing ministry of the Holy Spirit who caused Scripture itself to be written. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. I think you should repeat that. I think that's very important. I'm not going to ask you to repeat that, but I hope the listener will back this recording up and listen to that again, because I think what you said is very important. God the Son took on human nature, and he remains a true man and truly human, even at the right hand of the Father. So it's not as if God is opposed to the material. That would be a pagan way of thinking, right? Setting up a dichotomy between that which is immaterial and that which is material. At the same time, as you say, there are divinely appointed representations of spiritual realities, and then there are those that we construct for ourselves. Now, in this case, they're being tempted to go back to things that had at least some basis in divine appointment, but that divine appointment had expired. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yes, and I think we ought not to censure them too severely, because to date, so to speak, their whole upbringing and culture had been orientated in that direction, so that for them to have come to faith in Jesus as the Christ who had been crucified and who was no longer on earth is something that is only explicable in terms of divine revelation. But now the temple is still standing, sacrifices are still being offered, and they don't have anything that corresponds to the high priest in all the regalia of his office and splendor. And it's easy for them, because of persecution, 
That's one explanation, but also because of failure to grow, that's another. It was easy for them to succumb to the old appeal, the old religion, the fascination with the visual, and that's what is answered by the verb we have. What they didn't have might have been weighing more on their minds than what they did have. Hence the emphasis of the writer to the Hebrews. And it's not as if this kind of temptation doesn't exist today. It's not as if we are somehow superior to these Christians because we're tempted to begin to look for priests in regalia to represent us to God and to look at powerful aesthetic representations of God and and all of those things. So these verses might well have been written to us as to them. Well, we'll move on. Verse 3, it says, For every high priest is, as you mentioned earlier, appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this high priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve at a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And we'll stop there. What is the gift that every high priest offers, and what is the gift that this high priest, Jesus, offered? Gifts and sacrifices are mentioned in chapter 5 in connection with all priestly activity. And if a sacrifice is a blood sacrifice, then the burnt offering and the guilt offering and the peace offering are inevitably included there. But there were bloodless offerings as well. And perhaps it's those that are being referred to by gift, where gift and sacrifice, two terms, are used separately. The gift that Jesus can be regarded as offering is the gift of himself by way of perfect obedience in his life, culminating in his penal death. We should say that again. That's no small thing. The gift that he offered is not a lamb, not a goat, not a pigeon, not something else as a representation for himself, as a substitute for himself. All the other offerings that had been made to that point had been made by other people or at least by oneself as a substitute for oneself. Jesus came not to offer a substitute for himself. He actually offered himself as the substitute for us. He didn't bring a lamb. He didn't bring a goat, at least not in this case. He brought himself, which is a remarkable thing, which takes us back to the whole business of the types and shadows and the announcement then of John the baptizer. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that was for all its striking newness predicted in the Old Testament for any who had eyes to see it, so to speak. He, that is the suffering servant, would pour out his soul unto death. And the writer to the Hebrews picks it up. He offered himself a remarkable statement. You know, he, being the incarnate Son of God, offered, i.e., to God himself, that is the sacrifice. Which is either the height of arrogance (laughs) or the real thing. Of course. So we have to make a choice. One cannot say, I'm following Jesus because he's a great teacher. But if he offered himself and he was not the thing, if he was not the reality, if he was not the Lamb of God, then he's just a crazy man. Yes, if all that we say is that he's a teacher, of course, we are denying the fact that he is a priest of any kind. And by implication, we are denying that we need a priest, i.e. someone to represent us before God. And that denial is but an attempt to get rid of our own sin by pretending it isn't there. 
we also have to reckon with the fact that we live in a time that has existed for maybe a couple of hundred years, but pretty intensely since the beginning of the 20th century, where modern people have become very uncomfortable with the notion of a substitutionary atonement. And yet the idea of substitution and the idea that Jesus died to turn away divine wrath and to do away with human sin is all through the book of Hebrews, not only in its explicit teaching, but also in its implicit teaching in naming Jesus a priest. The sad thing is that there are evangelicals who are denying that. A few decades ago, it was liberals who compared the substitutionary atonement to the gospel according to the shambles, referring to that street in York which had butcher shops on either side, and the road between the butcher shops was covered with what butchers had no sale for. But now, you know, there are evangelicals saying that for God the Father to treat his son like this is ultimate child abuse. Yeah, the the old liberals used to call it a slaughterhouse theology, mm-hmm. and now you have quote-unquote evangelicals who are denouncing a, a substitutionary atonement as, as you say, cosmic child abuse. But Hebrews, which we receive as God's holy word, presents very clearly to us his work in the context of substitution. When we come back after this break, I want you to address this question, and that is, Hebrews says something very interesting in this passage, that were he on earth, that is our Lord, he would not be a priest at all. And we'll come back to that right after this. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480- 8474 Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Here's a supposition that he makes and is followed by a correction. He makes the supposition because, of course, it was an element in the thinking of the minds of those he was addressing. He he was absent, whereas the high priest was present. But he says, if he were on earth, he would not be qualified to be a priest, let alone a high priest, because the priesthood was limited to the line of Aaron. And Jesus came, as chapter 7 makes clear, from the tribe of Judah. And the writer adds there, on that subject, Moses said nothing in connection with the priesthood. So he is disqualified by God in his law from becoming a priest because he's of the tribe of Judah. And yet he is a priest. Yes, which is an indication that just like Melchizedek was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ prior to Aaron, and that is endorsed in Psalm 110 in David's time, so the fact that the high priest that would deal with the human predicament lay outside that system which could only point to it and never bring it into effect and accomplishment. 
Verse 5 puts a fine point on things when it says, They serve, meaning the earthly high priests, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Because the things that they saw, the things at which the priests served, were real. I mean, they were physical. They could be seen, touched, moved, and so forth. And yet, the writer to the Hebrews says they aren't the most real thing. What does that mean? Copy and shadow are important words, aren't they? And the fact that there are two there is interesting. Copy isn't enough to depict the relationship between the Sinaitic economy and the New Covenant. Copy indicates that there's some similarity. Shadow indicates that there's some reservation to be introduced even into that element of copy. Copy of heavenly things, what was depicted or revealed to Moses on the mount, was then erected and fashioned in accord with God's law. But that wasn't the real thing. It only depicted it. But it didn't even depict it in the clearest possible light. It was in shadowy form. So to become taken up with a material, visible, ritual, with regalia of any sort at all, Judaism downwards, is to treat as real what cannot save. All those things, instituted by God, all worked for Jesus. They were never meant to be permanent, and they were never meant to compete with the reality in Christ. And so he makes an analogy here between the superiority of the heavenly tabernacle in which Jesus is now the high priest with the old and new covenants. And the new covenant is enacted, founded on better promises than the old. There's more than one covenant, and here there's a reference to two in a number of ways. But what is most important that differentiates them is this matter of better promises. Promises convey blessings. And what is unique about the better covenant is that it actually conveys freely, fully, irrevocably what is contained in the promises. As you say, two covenants. One is old and one is, by implication, new. One is based on transient principles or promises, one based on superior promises. When he says old covenant, to what does he refer? And we'll get to this in more detail in verse 8 and following. Yes, he isn't referring to the Abrahamic covenant. He's referring to the covenant at Sinai. How do we know that? Well, because of what he goes on to say about it. He says that it's not the covenant that he inaugurated when he took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Which is a clear reference to Moses and to the Exodus and Sinai, not to Abraham. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, I wanted to establish that because in verse 7, it says something really remarkable that were it not in the Word of God, we might hesitate to say this sort of thing for fearing to sound impious. Verse 7 says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. By implication, the first covenant had a fault, and therefore believers were looking for a second, and we ought not to miss it either. Yes, clearly a charge can be brought against the first covenant, which can be proven. Now, whether that reflects dishonorably on the God who instituted it is another question. That all depends on whether the fault refers to internal blemish or whether it refers to something that it was never intended 
to bring into being. There's nothing wrong with a boat so long as you're on the water. But if you take that boat and try to move it on the ground, it's going to be problematic and needs to be replaced by something more suitable. Is that fair? Yes, it is. And this isn't the only statement in which something is said in Hebrews which seemingly reflects adversely on God. In the previous chapter, there's a reference to the weakness and unprofitableness of the arrangement. Romans 8, the law, what the law could not do. Similarly, in Galatians, had there been a law given which could have given life, righteousness would have been by the law. All this is true It doesn't reflect adversely on God because God did not give it with that purpose in mind. Nevertheless, intrinsic to the thing is a certain impermanence and even deficiency because it was intended to point to something else. And now that something else is here in Christ. And so that gets us down to verse 8, which begins a quotation from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will declare a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them, to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, this quotation is extraordinary in a variety of ways. One way in which it is extraordinary is that it's probably one of the longer quotations from the Hebrew Scriptures that we have in all of the New Testament. And it's extraordinary, too, because here you have, in this chapter, a fairly explicit interpretation of this chapter. So walk us through this a bit. All right. The writer speaks of two covenants as first and second and old and new. And while the first couplet refers to time and order, the second refers to quality. Of course, there are more than two covenants in the Old Testament. But here are the only two which related to the constitution of the people of God and those characteristics which related to them. The old covenant which was made, clearly was unable to secure the obedience which was required by it, most clearly and in detailed form. And yet that old covenant was not unconnected with grace, because, as we've read, God took them by the hand, a very paternal and loving and gracious act, the parent to the child, and bringing them out of the land of Egypt, the whole question of the deliverance and the exodus. We shouldn't think of the Old Covenant as merely a covenant of law. To do that is to fail to realize that the result of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob going further back than the Exodus. So there's grace there. So there's continuity between Moses and Abraham, and and the Abrahamic promise that God made that gets restated here in Jeremiah 31 is very much a promise of grace. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So this is an utterly legal arrangement, and yet there is a certain quality to it that distinguishes it from Abraham. Is that fair? Yes, it is, because law predominates in connection with the details concerning it and the blessings to which 
those laws relate at one level is conditioned by obedience. On another level, it's a continuity of the Abrahamic covenant. You're listening to Office Hours. From Westminster Seminary, California. Moses breaks the tablets before he even makes it down the mountain. And so were it purely legal, well, A, it would never have got started in the beginning. (laughs) Right? So there's grace operating here, saving grace. And yet, even in uh, Jeremiah, there's a clear contrast drawn between the old covenant, whereby the Lord took Israel by the hand, and this new covenant that's going to come. How would you characterize the kind of language that Scripture uses in Jeremiah to describe the new covenant, and how should we interpret that language? Well, the prophets had difficulty in using language that was adequate. I don't mean by that inaccurate or unreliable. Adequate to the greatness of the covenant that was to come. You know, they strain at the limits of vocabulary in order to indicate that it was something absolutely unique and inexpressible. They used imagery and metaphors then, but that doesn't mean that while the reality was greater than the terms they used, that the terms they used did not reliably express something about that greater reality. Metaphor has meaning. It's not just a picture. If someone in the middle of the 19th century had an idea that one day there would be automobiles, and of course, when automobiles were first created, they were called horseless carriages. They were described in the terms that were available in the 19th century. Of course, they were much more than horseless, but that was true. They were horseless and somewhat misleading, but nevertheless true. So you use the imagery, the language that is familiar to your audience to describe something that doesn't yet exist, which means that when people read this language, they have to read it in the way it was intended to be read. For example, I've had discussions with some folk who say, well, it says I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And that means that everyone who is in association with this new covenant will necessarily be regenerate. Because here it says in the scriptures, right, put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they'll have no need of teachers even, here it says. And so this is how the new covenant must look. How do we read this language in light of what we know from Hebrews? Well, I do think that the reference here is to regeneration, but I don't draw from that the conclusion that it is only the regenerate who belong to the church. The church is made up of those who truly profess the Lord Jesus Christ and those who do so verbally but without saving faith, either by acknowledging truth or by agreeing with truth but not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. The expression here, however, clearly can't be understood in the same way as the old Hebrews were told to take bits of the law and write them, bind them on their foreheads and their arms and put them on the doorposts of their houses. There's metaphor there. So here the the reference is to the Holy Spirit internalizing the requirements of God so as to bring about a change in the disposition of the believing recipients so that they are no longer against the law, against God, but on the side of the law. They're now disposed to obedience rather than disobedience. The blessings of the new covenant are being cast here in Jeremiah in old covenant terms. And it can't be the case that people involved in the administration of the new covenant couldn't possibly fall away because we're studying the book of Hebrews, which is to a large degree dominated by this question of people involved in the administration of the new covenant who are being tempted to fall away. And so we want to understand the nature of the new covenant in the same way as the writer to the Hebrews does. And when he says that they will all know the Lord, he means that each 
will have a knowledge of him related to the knowledge of his mercy and his pardon. Know that they shall all, from the least to the four, I will be merciful. That is the blessing that each believer has. It doesn't mean that he now has no need of teachers. Not everyone involved in the administration of the New Covenant will necessarily, by virtue of being involved in the administration, participate in all of these benefits. No, and that's terribly sad, isn't it? Yeah. But that can happen. And so that's the reality we're dealing with here. And then finally, he concludes at the end of the chapter, verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, which we're taking as the Mosaic, not the Abrahamic, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Which is interesting if you think about the fact that this was most likely written in the mid-60s, and there is coming a war between Rome and Palestine in which, in 70 AD, the temple is to be destroyed. That's true, and it indicates the power of God's word when he speaks it, so that the declaration of a new covenant sent a shock, as it were, through the old that initiated an aging promise. It's been on the way out for years and years and years. Though it was still current and visible and present, yet it was becoming geriatric. That's that's the word he uses. <laughs> and as you say, Semti buried it. How does the fact that we live in this superior covenant, not by any doing of our own, but merely by God's grace, of what benefit is that to us and to our confidence in Christ that we belong to the new covenant? Well, Semti AD happened. The difficulty that Christian Jews had prior to 70 AD no longer exists. However, the tendency to focus on the material rather than the spiritual does. And what Hebrews is saying to us is that there are some things unseen, some things yet hoped for, and they're not altogether unknown. We have come already to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and yet the world is too much with us. And in all sorts of ways, we can be made to feel that what we have isn't worth much, and we can succumb to a failure to focus on things unseen and give ourselves to a contemplation of them by faith and the Word, depending on the aid of the Spirit. And when that happens, the danger is that we too can stumble and not make the kind of progress that we ought. And when that happens, then it's not a good road to be on. It's a way to apostasy. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.